Hello, this is Philippe Rovert from the Kusna Practice. We are reinventing here the uh, experience of care. I'm today here with uh, Dean Gusser. Dean? Hi, Philippe. Good afternoon. Dean in charge of, um, of our psychology and, and uh, psychiatric services here. I have a few questions today regarding the COVID-19. Um, as it's been one year since we actually uh, talked about the, uh, the last session reviewing where we're in COVID-19. We thought it would be a, good, a pretty good time now to actually sit down again and review what happened over the last uh, 12 months. So you're head of clinical operations here in uh, Kusnak practice. So having observed this year that has been passing by, so where are we? Uh, we, we we're now one year uh, from the first full impact of the COVID coronavirus crisis across Europe. And uh, with the repeated lockdowns and restrictions of movement and socializing, is there, in your opinion, a clear evidence of the uh, psychological pandemic following in the wake of the virus? For sure. I've, I've seen uh, lots of evidence that's been published about the effect of uh, COVID on the psychological health of the population globally. Some of these are, are specifically related to COVID, but there's also a kind of ripple effect of the impact of lockdown and the economic downturns. I saw one... Uh, one study that showed um, one month after the UK lockdown that there was a, a rise in the population prevalence of clinically significant levels of mental distress. It had gone up from 18.9% to 27.3%. So that's a big increase after just one month of lockdown. Also, I was reading some, uh, some studies about the impact of the uh, economic downturn. For instance, generally speaking, not this is nothing to do with COVID, but generally speaking, if there's a 1% increase in unemployment, there's evidence to show that there's a 1% increase in suicides as well. So I think the effect of this pandemic is being felt everywhere. Well, in some ways, I, I, I do understand that this mental health effects of the virus, uh, there would be far more... Um, far-reaching and, and longer term than for what you're saying, right? I mean, many people are going to feel long-term effects. I expect maybe around 15 to 25% of the population, life will not return to normal when we come through the other side of this pandemic, if and when that happens. This could include people, let's say, with alcohol and drug issues, depression, increased anxiety, increased social anxiety, maybe people with exasperated obsessive compulsive disorder issues. I mean, the list could go on. There, there's definitely going to be a ripple effect of long-term long effects. And then it's pretty much in line with the recent features, figures from the uh, UK's um, Office of National Statistics, the ONS, which reveals that there were 5,460 deaths related to the alcohol-specific causes between January and September last year. And it indicates as well that many are self-medicating their way through the crisis. That is up from 3,732 the year before, an increase of more than 16%. So the ONS says the alcohol-specific death rate in England and Wales reached 12.8 uh, 12 deaths per 100,000 people from January to March, its highest level since 2001, when the figure was 9.5 deaths of the UNS annual report was published, as the European Commission reported that about 800 people in Europe now die from alcohol attributable causes every day. 
So these figures, plus the ones you're sharing with us today, show a clear correlation between alcohol dependency and the pandemic, or do they not? Is this something you have witnessed yourself at the Kusnak practice? I mean, there's definitely a link to increased alcohol consumption during the pandemic, especially as time, time has gone on. A lot of the research that involves people reporting on their own levels of alcohol consumption has shown that people are drinking more, maybe up to a third more than, than pre-pandemic levels. And perhaps this drinking may have shifted as well to people using drinking as a coping strategies for all of the other uh, issues that we that we that we talked about. It would be interesting, I think, to look at the drinking patterns by examining what alcohol people have actually been purchasing. I think the retail research showed a, a marked increase in purchasing, in bulk purchasing, right at the start of the pandemic. My instinct tells me that as time goes on, we we would have found a decrease in the in the people drinking the very expensive wines, and maybe an increase in the purchasing of higher strength alcohol products such as spirits, and maybe an increase in a lower price, lower quality um, alcohol products. I think one would all would would also expect with more alcohol being purchased and drunk that we'll see an increase not just in deaths, but in other alcohol-related incidents. Obviously, an increase in health-related incidents and things like domestic violence. Let me just mention that men who drink are six times likely, more likely to abuse their partners or children. So domestic violence has been labeled the pandemic within the pandemic. I mean, resolving these kind of issues is complicated enough without lockdowns, and all the other things associated with COVID-19. And we also know that there's been a reluctance for people to access healthcare for fear of risk of infection. And this may have added to the death rate as well. I mean, at the Kusnap practice, I would not say that we've seen a remarkable increase of clients coming in for alcohol-related issues. But for sure, we have definitely seen an increase in, in cases of depression and anxiety reported to us by clients that can be attributed to the situation that's going on at the moment. Right. And then we see the use of uh, methamphetamine and fentanyl also shot up after the pandemic hit the US with a particularly sharp spike for the latter. According to a news report by drug testing company Millennium, Millennium Health, the adjusted positive rate of urine drug screens was up 78% for fentanyl and up 29% for methamphetamine during the first nine months of the pandemic compared with the same period in 2019, according to the report. And Dean, do you, do you think users are more willing to take risk with these highly dangerous drugs and maybe break the law because of the feeling of helplessness and fear and hopelessness uh, brought by the pandemic? Is, is this more of a problem in the US or have you seen the same uptick in Europe? I mean, I haven't seen the full res research from the, from the States, but I can give you a possible theory regarding the figures you've quoted. <clears throat> in America, a lot of the methamphetamine is either manufactured within the country or imported through Mexico. And that the usual channels for cocaine smuggling have become more restricted because of the pandemic. So it doesn't surprise me to see an increase in the use of methamphetamine, as I believe it's linked to supply. Mm -hmm. It's easier to get hold of, probably less expensive than cocaine. Opiates in the, in the States 
also are generally imported through Mexico. Now, the tide has shifted in the prescribing of opioid medication in, in, in America. It's almost impossible to get opioids prescribed through legal means. Many groups in Mexico are now manufacturing their own counterfeit versions of the tablets that many people were addicted to in America. For example, things like OxyContin. Many of these counterfeits, in fact, most of them, probably have fentanyl as their core ingredient. And the same goes for the heroin being produced. Heroin comes to the States, mainly via Mexico, and often the fairly low-grade Mexican heroin is cut with fentanyl to increase potency. This makes for a very dangerous situation all around. Now, you asked about risk-taking. Risk-taking is synonymous with drug-taking. And if usual channels of supply are limited or access to particular substances are limited, then people will take alternatives and will take bigger risks when purchasing and taking these drugs. Personally, I believe the main issue is supply. And when a drug user has a problem with supply, then a sense of desperation may creep in that affects their behavior. Also remember that the lack of access to supportive services can also leave drug users isolated and without support and care. Regarding the comparison between this data and Europe, I think you probably need to widen it out a little bit. Methamphetamine use in Europe is on the whole focused within a small niche of drug takers and often associated with compulsive sexual behavior. There have been minor increases in fentanyl showing up in drug tests, but nothing on the levels experienced in the States. This may increase, however. I think money talks and fentanyl is an incredibly potent substance that can be purchased for a fraction of the cost of heroin. I see. Now, in terms of uh, still prescription drugs, more than 3.2 million antidepressant (coughs) items were also legally prescribed by GPs in Wales in the sixth month after the COVID pandemic started, which is an increase of 115,660 compared to the previous year. Wow. Yet uh, the therapy referrals were said to have dropped by a third. This figure is likely repeated across Europe. So how worried are you about the long-lasting effect of this pandemic and the incredible scar it's leaving across the world's mental health? It is perfect storm where sufferers are relying on the crutch of illegal and legal drugs while seeking less in-person treatments, aren't they? The increase in prescription of antidepressants shows that we're struggling to manage the impact on an individual level. I mean, overall, in general terms, even before the pandemic, there was increases in the in the level of prescriptions, but it's it's shot right up. And the lacking of therapy referrals shows that there's either a reluctance for for people to be referred or for the GPs to refer refer others. Perhaps there may be also a drop-off in the, in the provision of services. So maybe lots of traditional sites where people could go for counselling are cl- closed up. Yeah, you mean health centres and other exactly, places, right? Exactly. Yeah. The particular research that, that, uh, that you quote there is specific to Wales. And actually, there's a difference between accessing talking therapies in Wales and, and in England. In Wales, the referral has to come from the GP. In England, it's possible to self-refer to talking therapies. But even in England, 
people haven't been self-referring. And, and it just may be a reluctance to meet face-to-face with someone or an inability to be able to do that. So with limited options available, the antidepressant is a fairly quick and easy fix for doctors. But we have to remember that it's uh, finding the right antidepressant for somebody is a fairly arbitrary hit and miss process. So it's it's a difficult situation. It does, the antidepressant doesn't necessarily fix the fix the problem, and it de- definitely doesn't have a a long term solution to what's going on. Even in England, where there is the chance to self refer, there's been a massive drop off in referrals, at least a third as well. I think the the more we can do to promote a broader approach to the treatment of depression and anxiety, the better. And having good access to talking therapies and promoting them. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot we can do with uh, Zoom and Skype and, and these kind of uh, software solutions now to connect people. I know it's not the same as face to face, but we've become much more familiar with these, these strategies. So this is a lot of what you've been doing over the last 12 months to address most of the, most of the, the, the patients that couldn't, we couldn't, physically get in touch with right? for sure for, instance. for sure yeah i think we, there's there's hope in the air now as the vaccinations are being rolled out obviously quicker in some parts than others but they're they're being rolled out at least with there's a sense that we're at the beginning of the end and i think people can feel this but there's a lot of future planning now to mitigate these long-term uh, impacts so we need to take into account as the world opens up, how we can mitigate the harms, plan better for the future. And we have to start building healthcare systems that can cope in the future if something similar happens. We have to be prepared and we have to learn from what we've experienced now and use the research to do so. We have to design and put in place this continue, continuity plans for healthcare. So there's not just this huge drop off in suddenly services end for people. We have to do what we can to make sure that we don't fall into this kind of huge psychological hole again. Thank you so much, Dean, for sharing this with us today. We were talking 12 months after the spark of the uh, of the crisis of the pandemic, and uh, and uh, we're le- learning a lot of lessons here. Uh, thank you for sharing your views on this. Uh, we are here in the Kusma practice reinventing the experience of care. Dean, thank you very much for this. Thank you, Philip.